One of our friends in the tabletop RPG creator community, Owen Casey Stevens, needs our help. We're going to talk about that on the show and how you can help out. Albear Rodeo 2.0 has an official release date to come out of beta. There's a new Tales of the Valiant playtest focused on monsters. For the 2024 D&D update, there is a new playtest for the, what they're calling the Player's Handbook 5 with a whole bunch of new information. I'm going to talk about what it's like to run a Mass Effect style prelude and battle in D&D, specifically focused around Light of Xeraxis. I'm also going to talk about tuning the Lazy Encounter benchmark, an easy way to kind of tune the Lazy Encounter benchmark to make it more relevant for you and your group. And we're going to cover more questions from the April 2023 Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, previews of upcoming products, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, tons of different material that you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can become a patron of Sly Flourish by following a link down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Owen Casey Stevens is a creator in the tabletop RPG area for a long time. He has an excellent blog where he talks about all different kinds of design stuff. He's designed for D&D. He's designed for Pathfinder. He's designed for many different RPGs. And he is having a number of different severe medical issues that have been going on in his life. Very, very hard, very hard situation. And a bunch of creators have gotten together to create two bundles of tons and tons of material that you can pick up and help out Owen, but also pick up a lot of material at the same time. Both of these are available on DriveThruRPG. There's a bundle one, $35, but includes $700 worth of material in it tons and tons and tons of different product and again even if you don't play all of these systems many times you can find stuff from one of these different period one of these different publications that you can draw into your own game many many different publishers have offered have, have offered stuff it's a fantastic a fantastic deal but also a really great way to help a member of our community in need both of them 35 bucks but both of them go to help owen stevens as he is going through these issues so please if you can take a look at those bundles take a look through what you get pick them up and help one of our members who definitely could use the help right now it's a very it's a very hard situation that that he's in Albert Rodeo is my favorite virtual tabletop. I have been using Albert Rodeo now, I think since it came out, like in the middle of the pandemic. I had primarily used Albert Rodeo 1.0 for a long time and then started using the Albert 2.0 beta early on. What's interesting is I wasn't crazy about Elber 2.0 when I first started. There were parts of it that I felt took longer than they should need to take. And I just, you know, I had to kind of relearn it and it was definitely slower. But two things happened over the past probably a year maybe that it's been going on. I don't know. Since, since I started with the beta, maybe a year, you know, six months to a year ago. One, I got more proficient in the tool. I learned how to use it. And I got faster at using the things that it's got. Two, they added a lot of features that were directly beneficial, direct improvements over Albear 1.0 that I wanted to use. And and they made it easier. It was more it was more streamlined. A lot of the, the things that I had trouble with kind of went away. And so now I have switched over to Albear 2.0 completely. I haven't even used Albear 1.0 in many, many months, if not like a year. And I've been using Albear 2.0 totally for my Scarlet Citadel campaign. It's worked really, really well. I like it very much. I am, I'm paying for the one that gives me extra space so I can store my material there. You don't have to pay for it. You can actually run a free version, but I think the assets and stuff that you upload, I think those eventually get cleared out 
out if you don't pay for it. So I'm paying for a bundle which gives you some space and lets you store maps and tokens and everything else that you need. And it's fantastic. So the release date for that is in July. July is when it's going to go official. And what that means is they're going to take down Albert 1 and replace it with Albert 2. All of your stuff from the beta will be redirected. So that should all be smooth. And then all of the rest of us will move to Albert 2.0. One interesting thing is that they're, they plan to, I don't know when they're going to do this or how, but they plan to take Albert 1.0 and make it an open source software package so that if you want to host it and run it and use it, you can. One of the neat things about Albert 1 is it doesn't require any server-side hosting. You can host the application itself, and when people download it, their local machine is what stores all the assets. And their local machine is also what streams those assets to other players. So that means that all you need to do is kind of put this up at a site and anybody can download it and use it and, and work with it. So that, that, that was a really neat feature of Albert One. And I'm hoping that they do go through the process of making that open source so that other people can host it. Again, you don't if, if you host Albert One, you don't actually have to have server space. You don't have to have places for people to store this stuff because all that stuff is actually stored on the main client's machine and then broadcast to the other players as they play. I'm eager to see it go. I'm eager to see Albert One go into open source and two is I'm eager to see Albear 2.0 become the new standard because I've been using it for a long time and I really like it over on the Albear Rodeo YouTube channel you can find a link to that down in the show notes below there are a whole new series of Albear 2.0 videos to get you ramped up and to show you how they work I haven't gone through them all yet I specifically want to go through I want to watch them all because I bet you there are ways that I'm using it that aren't that efficient and that by understanding how the creators built it and the kinds of ways that it's meant to be used I'll bet I'll be even faster at it so this is one of those things where like it's worth a little effort up front to learn more about how Albert works because then we'll be that much faster when we're using it at the table. But I'll tell you, just by monkeying around with it myself, I still find Albert 2.0 to be an excellent, excellent virtual tabletop. My favorite, my favorite virtual tabletop. So I wish them all the best. This is a, such a fantastic tool. I noticed that Kelsey from the, the creator of Shadow Dark RPG and Arcane Library, that she uses Albert Rodeo when she's running Shadow Dark RPG, which I think is really cool. So it's definitely, it's, it's an underdog like of the VT. And we're not, I don't think anybody's really looking for it to be like bigger than Roll20 or anything like that. I want to see it successful enough that it's worth the creator's time to continue to put energy towards it because I think it is such a fantastic tool. It's such a great way to play RPGs online, all different kinds of RPGs. Kobold Press has released the Tales of the Valiant Playtest 3, which is focused on monsters. You can find a link down in the show notes below to take a look at the playtest. And it is a 40, I think it's a 40 page playtest. Yeah, 41 pages focused on monsters. There is a whole bunch of text up front that talks about what this how the stat blocks work and what they mean there are a few interesting changes that the stat blocks have from your traditional fifth edition stat blocks one of them is this idea of tags that monsters have certain tags these tags could correlate or could connect to different abilities so that if you're facing a chaotic creature it could be different than if you're facing something else you could have a weapon that does extra damage versus chaotic stuff like that that's an interesting idea they got rid of hit dice they only have hit points they have a few things we'll look at the specific stat blocks but that's one of the one of the interesting things they added a stealth value so that every monster if it happens to be sneaking has a static stealth value that the characters would roll against in order to detect them sort of like a passive stealth score that that works they have simplified the ability modifier block we'll look at that as well they basically took all of the skill proficiencies and saving throws and ability scores and mashed them up into one block which i think is a really a really valuable thing to do a little bit of changes in senses that i don't really understand little bit of talk about what it means for different monsters of different challenge ratings and how do you use challenge ratings and what it means. PC level the monsters. They do not have the encounter building guidelines yet. I think that's coming out in a future playtest. 
There's this new mechanic called doom points. Doom points are sort of like action points for monsters. There are ways that monsters can sort of provide an even greater challenge. And the way it works is boss monsters can have one or more doom points. And then during combat, a GM can spend a doom point to give a monster advantage on a single attack or force a PC to roll a save with disadvantage. So it's not used like legendary resistance or legendary actions. It actually makes something a little bit more powerful. You could give them these doom points and they make these attacks with advantage. Neat idea. And it's another one of these sort of transportable ideas, kind of like the luck points of, of Cobalt Press. You could just add doom points to particular monsters and they can just kind of like hit hit harder which i which i kind of dig it's a neat idea we'll look at that one thing you'll notice from the stat block is that all of the monster damage is just a static score they do not have a dice equation next to the damage and it was to simplify monsters and make them easier to run and kind of lean towards the style of of running a monster that i happen to really like which is using static monster damage i've been talking about and promoting static monster damage use for a long time ever since i've been playing 13th age i was like oh this is so much easier than rolling dice for monster damage but definitely i'm in the minority and i recognize that like a lot of the people that are look at this are are going to, you know they're going to be like wait a minute I like rolling for monster damage nine and my my general feeling is ninety percent I have a feeling they're going to get pushback on this but what they do is they have a table up front that says if you want to roll damage just go down this list and say if they do fourteen damage roll two d twelve or you know yeah this one it all looks like it's the same that's weird I don't know why they have tiny small medium or large or huge you really don't need that you could really just consolidate this because it looks the same for most of it. Right? Like, I don't, I don't notice any difference. There's very few differences. Like, why is it if it does four damage, you do 1d4 plus one, which averages to three, or 1d6 plus two, is medium to large? Strange. So I would actually think that instead of having, you know, you only need one, you only need one table for this, I think. I don't need, I don't know why they have three tables for this. But I think a lot of people are going to say, like, I want the dice equation back in the monster stat block. It would not surprise me if they end up having to go, having to pull back on that. But personally, I'm good with the static I'm good with the static monster damage. So let's look at a few actual a few actual creatures here. So like I mean, sta- straightforward creatures, most of them are very similar to what they have. They all have like a little bit of a small tweak, just a little thing that makes them slightly different. So you have your animated armor, which is challenge rating. Where is the CR? CR1. And it has you know 18 AC, 39 hit points, so pretty hard to hit and a fair number of hit points. One thing is they combine the immunities and resistances into just two lines, so there aren't... There aren't immunities and resistances split out by damage type or by condition type that they are all they're all the same. Vulnerable to acid. That's kind of that's kind of fun that you can burn an animated armor. And it has this like bonus action piecemeal repair when it's at 19. So essentially when it's at half its hit points, the animated armor regains five hit points. In this one, it's like this thing's already going to be hard to hit already has a lot of hit points and you're giving it more hit points. It's just going to be kind of a pain. It also doesn't do a lot of damage plus six to hit seven damage, which at CR one, that's eh, about right, I guess. That's a little a little light on damage, a little high on defense. So those are kind of, you know, that's an example of a small one. Let's look at like a bugbear champion. And you can see where like the abilities, now you just have this one ability block. You don't have to have a separate one for skill proficiencies. You don't have to have a separate one for saving throws. If they make a, a, win, a wisdom save, you just use this. If they're trained, it, they will add their proficiency to this automatically. So that that's really nice. And this one actually has a doom point. So the bugbear champion has one doom point, which you can use, expend it to use a standard doom options or the clobber action. So it actually has these like special actions. This is not a legendary monster, but it's kind of a boss like monster clobber bugbear chief can spend one doom point to, to turn a missed attack into a hit or a regular hit into a critical hit. Brutal. That's brutal. And it's got the surprise attack thing, extra seven damage. 
when it surprises. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I don't, you know, it's neat that you can take doom points and apply it to monsters that aren't legendary. When you start to apply doom points to legendary monsters, well, now I've got another thing I have to track. I already have to track legendary resistance. I have to track legendary actions. And now I have to track doom points as well. I worry that that is a, that's a lot of stuff for me to have to, you know, it's a lot of stuff for me to have to worry about. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that's, I don't know how that's going to play out. We're going to see. And let's, let's take a look at like a, here's like a husk demon. Let's take a look at the husk demon. CR 410 hit points, AC 15, immune to necrotic, no resistances. Again, you can see like dex is five, wisdom is minus one, you know, all that kind of neat thing. Doom points, one doom point. And it seems like the, the doom point can do this thing, but many times when it has a doom point, you can also do, you know, you can also do another thing. The Husk Demon makes two void drain attacks, plus seven to hit, six slashing and eight void. Woo, that's high. 14, 28 points at CR4. That feels about right. Target's hit points maximum is reduced by the void damage taken and the Husk Demon regains hit points. Wow. Soul feed. Husk Demon drains the life from the creatures around it each time it does, so the effect is more violent. Every creature within 20 feet of the demon must succeed on a DC 14. First feed, each creature is slowed. Slow creature repeats the saving throw at the end of its turn. Each creature regains one level of exhaustion. Ooh, unconscious creature that fails its save instead gains three levels of exhaustion. I don't know about exhaustion. I wonder how they're doing exhaustion. Is exhaustion the same? Second, third feed, each creature takes 18 necrotic damage and is stunned until the end of its next turn. A creature re- reduced to zero. That is really, na- I mean, that's definitely a big boss monster. Like that husk demon at CR4 is a big, big brutal one. And imagine he had a bunch of these at high levels. I don't know. This is a little, a little kind of takes a lot of agency away from characters. So I'd be a little worried about, especially like exhaustion is, su- if they're using standard exhaustion, you know, the 5e 2014 exhaustion, which I don't like. We're going to talk about exhaustion. Let's take a look at a big dragon. They have an, they have a, I think they have an adult red dragon. Here you go. Great big. Oh, do they have a void dragon? Let's, I don't think they have an adult void dragon. So we'll stick to the adult red dragon because it's, I think, one of the higher CR. CR 18, 270 hit points. Yep. AC 19. Yep. That looks good. Immune to fire. No other, no other things. Doom has three doom points, which you're going to spend to use standard doom actions or the elemental roar action and legendary resistance. So you have three of those. I know there's some people that would prefer there's a different way to do legendary resistance. I'm, I'm fine with, I'm fine with legendary resistance. Dragon fails to save, it choose to succeed instead. Terrifying presence that makes one bite and two claw attacks. Terrifying presence. Every creature in the wisdom is at 550 feet, DC 19, and become frightened. At the time of fighting this, most likely you hopefully have some way to get through frightened. And frightened doesn't do whatever he thinks it does. It doesn't mean you run away. It means you cannot get closer to it and, and there's some other, some other detriment. You're disadvantaged while the, the source of your fright is within range, but it's not that bad. The fire breath is 66 fire damage. That's a good amount of fire damage. DC 21 save for half. So that, that seems about right. The elemental roar. Dragon emits an ear-splitting roar. Curses creatures with elemental chaos. Each creature within 500 feet of the dragon is able to hear the roar. Must make a DC 21 charisma save or be cursed for one minute. While cursed, the creature has vulnerability to fire damage. Woo. Creature that has resistance instead loses it for the duration the creature can repeat the save at the end of the turn i would probably put an immunity breaker in there too just in case you have somebody has immunity for some bs reason the other thing is the element of roar takes a full action but you can't use it for a whole other turn which means it would take two turns to set this up i would probably move the elemental roar as a legendary action instead or as a bonus action since it since it requires a doom point and it has a limited number of those anyway i would i might make it a bonus action to do that so that it can do its other things and start using that effect right away that might be too dangerous i just feel like spending an entire action 
to roar with the doom, you know, you're, you're hitting your action economy problem there. I don't know. I'm not sure about the best way to do that, but that that's an example. But again, we have this thing where I'm not sure I'm crazy about it because I've got to track number. I have, now I have to track doom points, which I get three of legendary resistance, which I get three of, and then legendary actions where I get three of those. So I now have three different mechanic bits plus hit points that I've got to manage with one boss. And I worry that that that's a lot. Of, I know, like I can't remember freaking legendary and i don't know if they have lair actions if they have lair actions on top of it now i got another thing i got to track so that's a lot of they might be getting rid of lair actions i wonder if they're getting rid of lair actions if they are then that might not be so bad but if they are not you know that's 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 pretty bad so anyway take a look at this it's free to check it out 41 pages tons of monsters you can take a look and see and see what you've got one of the interesting questions somebody brought this up when we were talking about this before before i I started the show is like is this is this enough of a change that makes it worth buying a whole other book certainly right now it does the big question is at the end of 2014 the end of 2014 we're gonna have five different six different highly produced fifth edition basic monster books monster books that are focused on the core monsters and those six books include the 2014 monster manual the 2024 dnd monster manual the tales of the valiant creature book the c7020 creature book the level up advanced 5e creature book and flea mortals that's six different monster books that are all going to you have six different types of goblins across all of these now if you just love monsters and who who doesn't i love monsters i'm i'm going to definitely have all of these like i'm buying all of them but not everybody has enough to spend 50 60 books 50 or 60 dollars a book for six different monster books, that's a lot of different monster books that are all covering the same kind of monsters. So what, wh- you know, which ones are you going to buy? And I think the good news is we're going to get good previews of all of these. And some people might say, I want to just focus on the monsters that Flea Mortals is producing, or I'm going to stick with A5E, or I'm going to just go with the 2024 monster manual. So it's a big question of which one of these you tend to like more, which one you want. And we'll see what that looks like. Now, the Kickstarter that Kobo Press is going to do is going to happen before the 2024 Monster Manual comes out. So that'll have an effect. Of course, we don't know when Wizards of the Coast is going to be putting out their Monster Manual for playtest. So we're going to see. But we're going to have a lot of different variants of a lot of different monsters. And that's going to be interesting. And, and, and we'll, we're going to have to look at it. And I don't really have an answer to it until they're actually out to say like, well, which one of these monster books is the best? Particularly because they use the same monsters. Right now, I've been using Level Up Advanced 5e for a lot of monsters, and I like them. There's definitely a lot of really interesting design things that I like in the Cobalt Press monster book. The question is, like, do I want to now use these monsters more than I want to use A5e, which I want to use more than 2014? I don't know. So it's it's going to be interesting. We're going to be in an interesting time. Good news is I think more options are better right that we have different design ideas different ways that we can go more options give us lots of different choices and that's going to be good we'll see i think it still makes sense for cobalt press to be doing a book like this because between this and their players book they will have a complete 5e package that they control from top to bottom they will have designed every aspect of it from top to bottom an entire 5e system that is all their own they are the master of their own domain whether or not and and every single book in that is also cross compatible with other fifth edition books so that's really that's really powerful the question is like if you're really only going to buy one monster book which you do buy 
I don't know. We're, we're going to have to take a look when all these things get published. And there's still many to come. Flea Mortals, the four of those six aren't out yet, right? Four of the six, we still have to see come. Flea Mortals is coming out. The, the Tales of the Valiant is coming out. C7020 is coming out. And the 2024 Monster Manual are coming out. So we don't know. We don't know which ones of those are going to be the best or which ones we're going to use. We're going to have to find out. We'll have to see. So interesting stuff. Really cool. Check it out. You can find a link down to the playtest down in the show notes below and give them, if you take a look at it, give them feedback and you will dig it. Also, along with feedback that we've been getting is the Wizards of the Coast Unearthed Arcana Playtest 5 for the player's handbook. They've, I, I don't know that they've started calling them a player's handbook playtest before. I, I don't know if that's new or I'm just picking up on that. And by far the biggest thing that this has in it are the new weapon tables with the new mastery things. The, ma- the whole mastery idea, really, really interesting idea that melee characters can focus on mastering a particular weapon and they get that weapon now in their hands does something different than just a standard weapon really neat crunchy idea that gives a lot of new capabilities to 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 characters that don't typically have a lot of crunchiness and variability in how they do things so i really dig that you're going to want to check that out they also cover five new classes including one subclass for each of the classes focus pretty heavily i think on no i guess it's a mix of both spellcasters and and melee types and with you know some new some new spells a, f- a handful of new feats mostly the epic tier feats the barbarian is in it the fighter is in it the new fighter the new sorcerer is in it the new warlock is in it somewhere there's the warlock and the new wizard now I have not dived in it's big it's 50 pages I haven't dived in and looked at every single thing from my perspective, when I am looking at a class-focused or, or player-focused playtest like this, the number one thing I'm looking for, are any of these going to make my life harder as a DM? I don't, I don't know. And, and I, I haven't seen anything or heard anything that says, oh, yes, it's definitely going to be worse for DMs if this makes its way in. It's something I'm going to have to, to, to read and to dig into and to get other people's opinions on. I don't even think I bothered putting in playtest feedback for the last one. It was right in the middle. I don't know. I was focused on other things at the time and never got around to it. So there is no, yeah, one says there isn't a monk yet. So we haven't seen anything. We haven't seen anything in the monk. But the big question is, you know, are there any other features that they've put into here? And ideally it'd be really great if they made life easier as a DM. Can't have everything. But certainly please don't make my life harder. Don't add new actions. Don't add new things that stack on top of stuff. Don't add lots of new die rolls. They're definitely things that have been released in recent books that made my life harder as a DM. Don't don't do that, right? Like I mean, maybe I'm being overly focused on the world of a DM because you certainly want to make the game fun enough that players want to play but you really want to make life easy for a DM to be able to run it. If it's hard for a DM to run, the DM's not going to want to run it and it doesn't matter what your player options are. So the more, you know, the more things, you know, the the more things get bound up, the harder, the harder things get. The one thing that when I was paying attention to this and I had heard somebody say this is they, they removed, they removed the exhausted condition. And I really hope it's not because they're going back on the whole way that they were doing exhaustion because it was one of my favorite things about this playtest. I brought it up and said, oh, I love the exhaustion mechanics so much. I want to bring it into my game right now. And I really do. I loved the way they were handling exhaustion. So why did they remove it from this entry? It's not clear. Did, they, did it not work? Are they going to go back to the crappy exhaustion 
Like, why Why is that removed? They, they're not saying, and it bothers me. Like, they, it would have been nice if they had a little, given how popular it was and how much people talked about it, I'm sad that there's not a little design thing that either explains why you would take away what I thought was the best change in the conditions that I had seen. I don't know. I really hope they're just, I don't know what they're trying to do. I, I But I hope they're not taken away because I really, really liked it. It's so bad I might just house rule it anyway because that would be really annoying. So anyway, 50-page playtest. You want to check it out? There is a link down in the show notes below. You probably already got word if you're interested at all. But check out the Player's Handbook Playtest 5 for the 2024 edition in particular. And if you are a good, like careful reader of this in the comments, please let me know if you see things that are in here that you feel are making life for a DM harder and explain why. That's what I'm really interested in. If you're a patron, please bring it up in the Discord chat so we can talk about it there as well. That's what I'm most interested in. Are things making life for a DM easier or harder? I am really hoping that they make life easier. If, if you see areas in here that are making life easier, the exhaustion mechanic was an example of something that made life much easier for DMs. It's way easier to track, way easier to remember, ways you can use it in lots of different ways. It was way less detrimental to players. It was a fantastic way to do it. But what are other ways and are there things in here that are making life harder that i'm really curious about leave a comment let me know if you find anything in here you think is you, you think is bordering that territory because i'd like to know i have been running the adventure light of zaraxis from the Spelljammer box set and i really like the adventure a lot i've had my criticisms about the Spelljammer box set mostly that i would have preferred a lot more setting material than it had but i have been enjoying the adventure it's a really straightforward episodic adventure kind of deep space fun D&D stuff. My players have been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it. I've liked the story as it's as it's evolved. I wasn't totally crazy with like the final couple of chapters. We're actually coming up to the the final game. The final session is going to be coming up in a couple of weeks for, for that game for me. And one of the things I did that I really enjoyed and wanted to share is this idea of a Mass Effect style prelude to war. So in the video game series Mass Effect, there's Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. There were a couple of aspects from Mass Effect that I grabbed onto and I used in my Light of Xeraxis game that I I think you can actually use in other role-playing games too and i wanted i wanted to share them so one example is when you have a game where you have a bunch of different npcs that the characters have met and have been introduced to and some of them come in and some of them fade away but you're keeping track of these npcs when you're starting to get close to the end of your game it's kind of fun to have sort of a prelude to war where all of the NPCs have an opportunity to get back together and the players have an, an opportunity to interact with them once again. In the game Mass Effect 3, I think it was actually an, an added patch. They had an event where they had sort of a, a garden party, some kind of big event where all of the NPCs that you'd been with and that you'd connected with throughout three games got together and talked to you and you could have these final conversations with them and sort of tie off any loose ends, finish the last sort of discussions that you have, have this final bit of closure with with each of the NPCs before you go right into the final battle, before everything goes in the directions and potentially before they all die. In my Light of Xeraxis game, I actually did this, right? A bunch of NPCs that are on the ship. I had a scene where sort of they had the opportunity to talk to all these NPCs and I gave each of the NPCs a little hook, a little reason to talk to one of the characters so that while the characters were kind of finishing up and getting ready and doing their stuff, the NPCs were coming to them or the characters would run into the NPCs. And I had fun things like two characters that were, you know, a former couple 
got back together again. And the players sort of saw that happen. One of the characters, one of the NPCs would come to the characters and give them a gift. Lots of different things that I did to get the NPCs to sort of reconnect with the characters and give the players the, the option to connect back to them. And I made it clear to the players, like as you're kind of interacting with these NPCs, this might be the last time you see them. Either, even if the war goes in a good direction, it might be the last time that you're really going to connect with all of these people again. So it gave them an opportunity to kind of choose which ones they wanted to role play with, choose which ones they wanted to talk to. And that really worked well. Then the other part of it was actually creating the, the, the war, in which case in this part, we had many, many different spell jamming ships that were invading the Zaraxxus play, the, the Zaraxxus Citadel, and all of the Zaraxian ships were coming the other direction. There was this great big war. And it was like a lot of people are really looking for like a heavy mechanics way. And actually the book has a tiny little bit of like how to figure out which ships are getting destroyed and which ships are not. And I wanted to handle most of that in the narrative. But the one part that I thought was really important was deciding which of those NPCs might be at risk and which of them might die. And what I did is I said, basically, there are three different specific missions that the characters can go on during this war. All three of them have different advantages. One of them might be getting ahead of the villains to get to the Temple of Light before the villains can fully set up a defense of the place. Another one is rescuing another NPC who has been captured and might be sacrificed before they manage to get there to save them. And a, a third would be like destroying the command ship to disrupt the organization of the enemy side. And the dirty trick is they can only do two of them. So instead of being able to do all three missions and solve all three problems, they have to choose which two they're going to do. Do they want to get ahead of the enemy on the defense? Do they want to rescue somebody uh, on the other side? Or do they want to disrupt what's going on in the capital? On the, do they want to disrupt the capital ship and disrupt the enemy action? Particularly that last one had an effect on how many of their NPCs that they have been interacting with are at risk. And what I basically said is that there were, I think there were 10 NPCs that the characters that were going into the war. They would roll 2d6 to determine how many of those NPCs were actually at risk from this war. So not necessarily dead, but, but put at risk. If they destroy the capital ship, that 2d6 goes down to 2d4. So they actually reduce the amount of risk to the NPCs that they know and love if they manage to take out the capital ship. But if they do that, then that NPC, one NPC in particular, is really at risk. And the defenses might get harder when they're going to their final base. So it gave these different options for, for them to decide how they were going to engage in this war, but still focusing on the characters and the jobs that they needed to do instead of doing a bunch of die rolling to determine like which ships blew up which other ships. That was going to be handled off screen, and instead it was focusing on the characters. Now, the other interesting bit about determining like which NPCs might be at risk. And again, this one I kind of stole from Mass Effect 2. When you run Mass Effect 2, the whole thing is actually like Seven Samurai. You're going around and you're picking up a bunch of NPCs to go with you on one big job. And so you pick up all these NPCs and you go on the big job. Depending on which NPCs you pick and which jobs you give them, put them at risk at the end. And you could lose a bunch of them. You could either, you might be able to save like one or two, or you know, you could lose them all if you give them all the wrong jobs or you have bad relationships with them. So in the same way, I sort of wanted to have the option of the characters being able to choose which NPCs they wanted to offer advantages to. So by that first part, rolling either 2d4 to determine how many NPCs are at risk or 2d6 to determine how many at risk, and then you roll to see which ones are at risk. You then give each one of them a death saving throw, a straight d20. You roll on a 10 or below 
they die on an 11 or above they survive but the characters can give something to the npcs that they love to give them advantage on that check so they don't know which ones are going to come up when you start rolling to see who's actually at at risk the players don't know which ones but they can say like have this suit of armor we have this magical suit of armor i want you to wear it and because they're wearing that magical suit of armor that character that npc might will have advantage on the death save if their name comes up now the other big question is when you're rolling so let's say you roll 2d4 and let's say you roll the average of five so then you say okay we're going to roll across these 10 and we're going to roll five times to determine which npcs are at risk if you roll the same npc multiple times you still roll death saves multiple times for that npc which means that they might be at double or triple risk if you roll the same one three times they're gonna have to make three death saves and survive all three in order to survive the battle so this was a way that was kind of transparent and open i talked about it with the players i described how i was going to do it i asked them if they were okay with that when i talked to one player in particular and i already knew this there was one npc we said we do not want to put them on the table we like this npc too much it would be too bad out of character it'd be too devastating for this character to die and we said that one gets a free pass that one is not going to die so that that was a way to kind of negotiate and say yeah these other ones it's really at risk but this one npc is it would just you know it would ruin the game if this npc died we said okay we don't want to ruin the game so we're gonna keep that npc alive but the rest of them we're gonna roll and we don't know i don't know we don't even know how it happened right now the battle is still going on in 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 the game and at the end of the battle is when we're going to make these rolls and see who survived and who died so that is kind of an interesting way i thought to handle sort of showing what the dangers and the perils of war in a way that's transparent and open that the characters and the players have some agency to do things about it but recognizing that it's largely happening off screen during this big battle and that is having these different missions that the characters can take one of the missions might reduce the number of npcs that are at risk i.e if you roll 2d6 or 2d4 depending on whether or not you take out one particular group that can lower the number of characters that are at risk and and in our case the characters did not take that one which means we are going to roll 2d6 and that is how many npcs are at risk and that could be a lot of NPCs. If we roll 10, that's every, that could be all of them, right? And then you roll, once you know the number of NPCs at risk, you roll on on that list that number of times to see which NPCs have to make a death save. And if you roll the same character more than once, that, that NPC has to make multiple death saves. The death save is 10 or lower, they die. 11 or above, they succeed. But if the players have an option before you do all that, the players have an option to give them something and it's usually something that matters to the characters they can't give them just like crap in their bags it's got to be something that the characters are making a sacrifice to do it doesn't always have to be like giving them a magic item it could be burning a high level spell slot it could be you're, you're, you know you they're using something it could be using a lot of money you know something they have to make a sacrifice of some sort to help a character that they like get advantage on the save should they need to make should they need to make that save so i thought that was a really interesting tool i wanted to share it with you One of the most valuable ways I have found to manage encounter difficulty is this thing that I refer to as the lazy encounter benchmark. You can find a link to an article in the show notes below if you want to see a written version of this. The way the lazy encounter benchmark works is that you have a simple equation that you can keep in your head that helps you determine if an encounter is in the red, that you basically you're you're getting into dangerous territory where one or more characters might actually die from the battle. That doesn't mean you don't want to run hard battles. It just means that you want to know if you're heading in that territory specifically. Specifically, if you're heading into that territory and you didn't realize you were going there. The way that the equation works is this. An encounter may be potentially deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one-fourth of the sum total of character levels or one-half of character levels if the characters are fifth level and above. 
As a quick example, let's say you have five level three characters. That is a total of 15. You divide 15 by four and you get roughly four. It's like between three and four. So if the total amount of monsters that you have if you add up all of their challenge ratings and that challenge ratings are less than three, you're probably not going to kill any characters. If it's greater than three, you might be at risk. Let's say we have five level six characters. The total character levels are 30. We divide that in half because they're above fifth level. That's 15. If all of your monster CRs together are greater than 15, you're in dangerous, you're in dangerous waters. It means you could potentially kill a character. It's a really easy way to balance characters and monsters, regardless of the mix of character levels or the mix of monster CRs. It's a nice general way to tell you generally speaking are you in the red but sometimes that encounter benchmark might not work perfectly for your group either the group has like companion npcs that are along with them or tremendously powerful magic items or maybe they actually don't work all that well tactically together so maybe they actually tend to it's, it's easy for them to get overwhelmed the the easiest way to tune the lazy encounter benchmark and the main tip that i wanted to offer today is you can use the same lazy encounter benchmark by either adding or removing a character from the game so an example is let's say those five level six characters are just destroying creatures left and right it's really you really look at these five level six characters like these guys are punching way above their weight class pretend there are six characters so now instead of a lazy encounter benchmark of 15 it turns into a lazy encounter benchmark of 18 you basically move the dial up and you did it by just adding another character let's say those five level six characters let's say one of them is continually working with a summoned companion and that companion is really really powerful and you think it's kind of like adding it just add a sixth character they're still at a six character is still six level so now you have 36 instead of 30 and half of that is 18 so now your cr benchmark is 18 and you can keep doing that let's say you add a seventh year oh no two of these characters are really powerful and the monk is stunning everything that comes out the mage is always casting banish or whatever you can just keep adding characters that are roughly the average level of the, the rest of the characters and add them onto the end and that keeps pushing the benchmark out now you might be thinking what it's better to just raise the level that instead of treating them as level four you treat them as level five the problem is because the lazy encounter benchmark has this stair this big jump between fourth and fifth level you could inadvertently push the whole thing too far if there were a bunch of level four characters but you treat them as fifth level well now you're going from one quarter of the sum total of character levels to one half so you're really better off just adding characters just add new characters to it if you need to increase the benchmark and the same way in reverse let's say that those five six level characters are too they're, they're getting stomped a lot that you realize like they're just not acting that efficiently they're they're getting they, they, they don't seem to be as powerful maybe they don't have the right class mix or something like that instead of treating them as five you could treat them as four so now you just basically remove one of the characters from the equation and now you have four six level characters which is 24 half of 24 is 12 so instead of a deadly encounter benchmark of 15 the benchmark is now 12 you've moved the needle to the left a little bit so that's a really easy way to take the lazy encounter benchmark this relatively simple equation that tells you how you know is my battle heading into the red or not and if you want to just tune the encounter you want to tune the benchmark a little bit to better suit the characters that you actually have you can do so by just adding more characters into the benchmark either pretend that there are more characters or pretend that there are less characters and then do the same calculation and you can come up with the same number you can find a link that talks all about the lazy encounter benchmark in the show notes below let's do some patreon questions every month on the sly flourish 
Patreon, we put up a new thread for monthly Q&A. Anybody that's a patron of Sly Flourish can put an RPG-related question there. I answer every single question that is there on the Patreon. Some of them I take and bring here to the show so that we can all talk about them and learn about our wonderful hobby together. Mick I says, what are your thoughts in relation to AI in the in the TTRPG world? Not just D&D, but right across. As an experiment, I asked ChatGPT to give me a level one D&D one shot using 5e rules, and it was solid. It had stats for the enemies, goblins obviously, minions and boss, a motivation for going, everything that a GM might need. It was a two minute game prep. Have you tried it? What do you feel the impact will be in the very near future? Really good question. Obviously, everybody is paying lots and lots of attention. I mean, Congress is paying attention to what's going on with ChatGPT and of what it means for humanity because it's kind of a big step that all of a sudden just sort of happened in some ways it is completely mind-blowing in other ways it is absurdly stupid so we have lots of ways that we're looking at this thing the way i see it as far as the generation of of content for our DD games is that it's it's a fancy random generator so if you take the random generation tables that you find in the Dungeon Master's Guide or you find in, I don't know, Sly Flourish's Lazy DM's Companion, which I think have the best random tables, but there's lots of other ones, many other, many other products out there that have really, really good random tables. If you look at what the random tables do and you look at how like ChatGPT is doing what it's doing, it's just taking the answers from random tables, kind of, I'm being, I'm being a little bit overly simplistic but basically it's like having a random generator with fancy words that read that read well that instead of having like four prompts that you have to put together it's kind of putting text around it but you notice something that i think is actually really important because it said goblins obviously do you know how many times it comes back with goblins when you try to do an adventure i asked it to run a 20th level adventure set in the world of tarasks and guess what i fought goblins and spiders so one of the things about a a a tool like chat gpt is it's not only just random it's also random with a big bell curve and it's always going to lean more towards the middle of that bell curve like for it to try to be right it doesn't pick the extremes it picks the middle now when you have a d20 list of 20 different potential threats for your adventure and you roll every one of those is evenly picked right you're you're rolling a d20 the d20 is the same five percent chance on any one of the rolls so if you think about how ChatGPT is doing every one of those is a bell curve and it's going to tend to be one in the middle and the one in the middle is almost always goblins which is i don't think it's really come up with really interesting prompts all the time i think it comes up with pretty generic prompts most of the time that's been my experience with it now i've seen chat gpt do a lot of other interesting things i've seen it take text and turn it into html really well i've seen it take stat blocks that are in a very rough format and turn them into a nice looking stat block i've seen a lot of different things that it does chat gpt did walk me through how to make map labels in pixelmator pro i am not a pixelmator pro specialist at all i own it and i use it for annotating maps but i was like how do i put a circle with a little shadow behind text that i could put in there and it told me how to do that there's things that it's able to do as sort of a like a like having a a a buddy sitting next to you that's working through this stuff that i think is pretty interesting as far as rpg generation stuff i don't know i think the jury is still out on a lot of that as a content creator one of the things that i worry about a little bit and like worry it's like well you know world's gonna go the way the world's gonna go my interaction and me talking to you about it i don't think we're changing the direction that this is headed i don't think this is going anywhere but when you have companies like google and microsoft who immediately stood up their own and you can see there's just tremendous force and tremendous money that's in here it's going to be really hard for anybody to to kind of stop and we could say like i'm not going to use it because i don't agree with it 
I don't think you're changing things. So, so that's, that's tricky. But as somebody who depends upon people to type in queries in Google for questions they have about D&D, who then find my website, read other things that I've got, go and see my videos, go and buy my books, and then get involved in this kind of thing I'm creating. If they're taking that connection out, I'm definitely going to have fewer people who are interested in the work that I do. So an issue is going to be if they're typing in things like, how does stealth work in D&D? Instead of finding my article that I wrote about how stealth works, and then you go to that article and see, oh, here are these other articles that he's written. And now, oh, look, here's these other things. And here's these books he's done. And here's these videos he's done. And he runs a Twitch show on Sundays, right? That instead of it connecting you, it's just going to answer you. And it doesn't tell you that it came from me. So even if it learned, I know that my stuff has been indexed by ChatGPT. There was Washington Post had a big article where it showed like which websites are providing which tokens to ChatGPT for it to generate its large language model. And mine was like millionth on the list of a list of 15 million. I was above the fold. I was above the middle, which means that, you know, if you do a lot of searching for D&D stuff, probably you're going to find some of my tokens, some of my words mixed up and mashed up with others that are answering those questions. The problem is it doesn't say, by the way, if you want more about this, go check out Sly Flourish's blog. He's got lots of stuff like this. Google kind of does that. Google says you type in a question and it shows websites that answer. One of those is mine. You go to my website, you read it, then you get brought in and you see these other stuff. It tells you about the newsletter. You subscribe to the newsletter and you get involved in my other work. I am worried as a producer, what happens when it just answers the question that came from me the answer you know answers came from me and many other people have talked about it and, and we're not cited and we're, nobody has ever given any reference like oh by the way this guy's got other videos you might want to see he wrote a whole book about this stuff that you might want to find out that reference isn't really coming up so that's something that i'm worried about and honestly we're gonna have to see where it goes i you know predictions predictions are almost always bs so it's not really worth predicting but that's definitely something that i am you know, concerned about. I don't think I can do anything about it. And it's not stopping me from trying out using ChatGPT for lots of other things too. So Mick, that was a long answer to your question. I hope you enjoyed it. Christopher W says, I know you're running Light of Zaraxxus. Yes, I was just talking about earlier. How are you handling combat between spell jamming ships? With rules as written, I find it clunky and untenable. In my first combat, I figured out that the opponent's ship could just slowly whittle down the PC's ship hit points by going in and out of range. If I had played it that way, the combat would have been slow and inevitable. Help, I need advice for spell jamming combat. Many, many people have complained about the fact that Spelljammer did not include good ship combat rules. It was really, really basic stuff. I am one of the few people who argued that the stuff I wanted from Spelljammer wasn't that, that what I wanted was more setting material. Because when I want to handle ship to ship stuff, I want to handle it in the narrative. I, I go with the same way that you would handle a war. Instead of trying to come up with a big tactical war game where the players are now suddenly involved of battalions and groups and platoons and they're doing stuff, keep the players focused on their characters and what they're doing is a larger part of the war and then make the parts that they're doing affect the war. And a good way to think about this is to look at like the Lord of the Rings movies and see that even during the Battle of Helm's Deep, you're focused on Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn and the things that they're doing during the war. You're focused on the stuff that they've got the missions that they've got the things that they're doing when they go out that secret door so that they can go take out the orcs who are trying to bash down the door you want to focus on the characters keep the focus on those characters and let the jobs that they do affect the larger war so when i was running light of zaraxis as I, I discussed previously on this on this show that when i was running light of zaraxis i had three different missions that the characters could do that all had an effect on the war do they rescue 
this is going to have a spoiler for Spelljammer, so be careful. Skip forward if you don't want to hear the spoiler. Do they rescue Princess Zadali, who has been captured on a ship and is on her way to the to the to the temple? Do they try to jump to the temple early so they can get there before the defenses are set up, or do they take out the capital ship to make sure that the rest of the ships can't operate as effectively because the capital ship is taken out? And I had the players decide which one of those jobs they could only pick two, and I let the players decide which of those jobs that they wanted to do, and the job affected the larger war, but the war was described in just narrative same way with ship battles get those ships close enough that the characters can start to do the things that characters do to get involved in those ship battles instead of worrying about what their distance is i had a three-way ship battle where i had githyanki attackers mind flayers and the characters and the characters managed to get the jump on the mind flayer so that the githyanki could go in and i described things like how the githyanki red dragon the characters had blown a hole with their with their ship they fired a hole burst a hole inside the mind flayer nautiloid ship and the githyanki now having an advantage jumped on that hole and a red dragon grabbed it and breathed into the hole and flames like burst out the sides and crisped all the mind flares in the inside of this of this nautiloid really really cool cinematic thing that we like you just don't handle with basic mechanics so that is i think focusing on the characters letting giving them interesting choices that they can make to move the battle in one way or the other is a more interesting way to go than worrying about specific tactics for ships i think i'm in the minority on this i think most people want ship to ship combat rules my understanding is that ghost of salt marsh and i think there's an old unearthed arcana for ghost of salt marsh that has some ship combat rules that people have been using to run ship battles so you can take a look at that as well Blake says I'm having issues with my group running after the shiny new toy each session instead of following up on threads from sessions before for example I am running Rhyme of the Frostmaid and my characters are level 3 I had Dazan's journal mention Revel's End and Valus just to lay out more foreshadowing and the characters immediately want to go there Meanwhile, there are plenty of other quests I have mentioned that they have seemingly no interest in in 10 towns. How do you tell your players that going to Revel's End at level three is not a good idea without feeling like you're railroading them? You are railroading them. So if, if they have the option to go to Revel's End, what's wrong with them going to Revel's End? One of the things that's going on is the players are telling you what they're interested in. <laughs> and you, there's like all this town crap is boring but revels end sounds really cool it's up to you to kind of move it down and say like if they're only level three give them a job along the way that gets into level four once they're level four they can pretty much handle most of the stuff that's going on there i don't think anything that happened in revels end is so high level that like being level three is 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 really too high but the the larger issue here is that you've put a bunch of quests out in front of them regardless of the fact they came from the book and we've talked all about my issues with rhyme of the frost maiden but basically you are are you put all of this stuff in front of them and you want to let them pick what they want to choose. So you give them a few quests. If you really didn't want them to go to Revel's End, you probably shouldn't have put it out in front of them. And if you really want them to do these other things, you probably want to make those interesting enough that they actually want to do them. But it sounds like the group is saying like, no, what's happening in Revel's End is kind of a bigger part of the story and doing these odd jobs for the town folk is really not interesting anymore. And that may be true. So it might be just time to kick them up a level and let them start doing the other stuff that's going on too. But I think when the players, when, when players are doing that, when you're putting stuff out there and the players are showing you their interests, interested in something, you really want to lean that way. Now, I've definitely had times where like, I steer them back. And you can't always say, hey, I'm going to you know, pause for a minute. You're probably not ready to go to level's end, Revel's End. But you probably will get there soon. You think you have to do another couple of jobs for the people around town before you can go there safely. You could say that. You could also do some BS of like, oh, there's a huge snowstorm. You'll never make the revels until that snowstorm passes. And the snowstorm doesn't pass until they do one of the other jobs. You could do stuff like that. 
that is railroading. You basically did say, hey, here's this other direction that they could go. And now you don't want them to go there. So I think it's worth thinking about, well, how do you restructure things? This is like paving the paths in the quad, right? You, you, there's that famous metaphor of you go to the quad in the campus and you see all the paths that all the students walk to get from one building. And that's where you pave your paths. I think it's an actual true metaphor. Instead of trying to pave like a nice clean path, they're just going to cut across it anyway. So look where the grass is dead, pave the path there. Same way here. When the players say they're interested in going some way, pave the path to go that way give them and then try to figure out why was it what were they interested in about that that made them want to do that more than these other ones how do you take whatever that kernel was that made it more interesting and apply it to other places so that they're willing to go those other places too so blake i hope that helps how are we on time we are uh we're past an hour so i'm gonna i'm gonna call it i'm gonna call it there Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while I talked through all things in RPGs. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, you can find more of my material by signing up for the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to do so. You can find a link down in the show notes below. You get a free Adventure Generator PDF and a free weekly related article sent directly to your inbox. You can also join the Sly Flourish Patreon. Like other patrons here, you can ask questions on the Patreon Q&A. You get access to a dedicated Discord server. You get a whole bunch of different exclusive material video previews, tons of stuff that you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, and you help me put on shows like this. Or you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion. All of those are available. All the links for all of those are down in the show notes below. Thank you all very much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.